We've been studying the book of Zephaniah this month, and we have gone into considerable depth into the first of two uh, word pictures that I think are pretty dominant in this book. And that first word picture is of God sweeping. Uh, he is, uh, it pictures God as sweeping everything off the face of this earth, of him uh, threatening uh, judgment and wrath on both Israel and on all the nations of the earth and threatening to sweep away evil and the evildoers from off of the earth. But bad news in the Bible is always accompanied by good news. And so we're getting to this second word picture, and that is of a singing God, of a God who is saving a people for himself in order to sing over them and delight in them and give them rest. And the passage that we're going to read today from Zephaniah chapter 3 is, I believe it contains God's plan of evangelism for the world. Now, I'm going to say right up front that that may seem a little odd to some of you when we get to this, because if you're like me, you grew up in a church that had a plan of evangelism, or a method of a special method of doing evangelism. And there's a whole slew of these. There is uh, the Roman road method. There's, there's the four spiritual laws. There's evangelism explosion. There's the, which I learned, the alpha program, the pray and say method, the walk through the Bible method, the five fingers or five colors method. There's even something called the tw- sharing the gospel with a $20 bill method, which Kind of sounds like a magic trick. I don't know. But most of these programs or methods, maybe all of them, are really good. They're very helpful. They're kind of, they give us a shorthand for how to talk about our faith and how to share our faith with other people. But none of them really sound like what we're going to look at today. And that's okay. We're going we're gonna to kind of reconcile the two. But This may seem a little odd to your your ears when we read this. But so, if you are able, please stand for this reading of God's word. Zephaniah chapter 3, starting in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord." Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. First thing we're going to see in this passage is that God's way of evangelism, his method of evangelism, is to unite his people in holiness. Now, there's a very interesting thing that God says that gives us a real key to this idea in verse 9. 
It's the start of what we just read. He says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Notice first off that the word peoples is plural. It says, I will, I will change the speech of the peoples. And what he's telling us there is that God's vision for evangelism is worldwide. Even though throughout the Old Testament he has one group of people that he has given the law and the prophets to, the nation of Israel. Here he says, I'm going to give the peoples a pure speech. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, you know that. In fact, we've known that ever since God called uh, Abraham, who is to be the father of a nation, Israel, but also... God said, you will be the father of many nations, a multitude of nations. So that's always been the plan. Always been the plan to save people all over the world, not just this one people group. But what does it mean that he will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech? Now, it sounds like it could mean that God is going to have everyone speak the same language, which could be what? English? Hebrew, Latin, I don't know, what is, what is the purest language? I think I would vote for Italian. Sounds the most beautiful to me. But I don't think that's actually what God is talking about here. He's not, he's not talking about everyone speaking the same language. This seems rather to be a reference to be, people being purified. Remember when the prophet Isaiah got a glimpse of God on his throne? What does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And that phrase, unclean lips, it's really a synecdoche. It's a, it's a symbol of what not just my mouth, but my whole self. I am sinful, and I dwell among a sinful people. And so what God is saying here and giving them a pure speech is that he's actually going to sanctify his people. He's going to purify their hearts and make them fundamentally holy and good rather than fundamentally sinful. He's going to turn them from being unclean to clean. That means is that holiness is not an optional part of the Christian life. The Bible says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, what, what does that mean? Let's talk about where, first what it does not mean. It does not mean that you are saved based on how good you are. All the women who have been studying the book of Galatians say amen. Is, we are not saved based on how many good works we do. What it does mean is that if someone claims to know God, but their life is not marked by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if it's not marked by these good things, then that person may be deceived. If you claim to be a Christian, but you don't really love the people around you, you need to examine when you, whether you really know God and whether you really belong to Him. Now, I know this goes a lot against what a lot of us heard growing up, which is that essentially 
All you have to do is walk an aisle and say a prayer, and you are saved no matter what happens after that. Listen, God's vision for saving someone is not simply to forgive their sins and then check them off the list, right? Boom, Joe walked the aisle, prayed the sinner's prayer. So now he's good when he dies 50 years from now. Let's move on, get the next person. No, when God saves a person, he has a fully formed view of who he wants that person to become and a plan for working in that person's life to become more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. Look at verse 13, talking about his people. They shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. That is a vision of someone who has been changed by God, who has been, who's grown in their faith, who's learned to tell the truth even when it hurts who's learned to do justice, to treat people well. It's a vision of someone who's not just believed in God, but has become like God. Yes, we don't become perfect in this life. We will not. But if the Holy Spirit has changed our hearts, we're going to grow in love for one another and in our character. We will be purified. We'll become people of a pure speech, as he says here. So God unites his people in holiness, but God also unites his people through worship. Now the rest of verse 9 brings this out. I'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now that phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, is a, is a technical term in the Old Testament, which means to worship and the fact that the name of the Lord is capitalized in the Bible, I don't think it is in your bulletin, but it is in the Bible. That's a, whenever you see that name capitalized, Lord, it, is, it indicates the name of God that is his covenant name, Yahweh. And so that means that it's, God is saying it is not enough just to call upon the name of a God, any God, you have to worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And verse 10 goes on to say, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers shall bring my offering. Cush was a rival nation in modern uh, day Egypt and Sudan. And again, the vision is to go to the ends of the earth to give people the ultimate reason to worship, which is the worship the wonders of Yahweh and who he is and what he has done. As John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. The goal of missions is to facilitate worship. Now, part of this, I know, is very offensive to modern Western people. The idea that everyone needs to believe in the one true God and that you would dare to tell another person or a whole people group that their conception of God is wrong, their religion is wrong. That's crazy talk. I, I recently watched a show called God's Favorite Idiot. I guess because I'm a pastor, I have to watch shows about God. Um, 
But the show starts with, it's about a character, a guy, a guy named Clark, who gets struck by lightning. And then he begins to glow at different times. And then he finds out that he is, uh, he's been called to be a messenger for God. And then he, he actually meets God. And it turns out God is an older woman who uh, tells him that uh, she, he is, she has chosen him to tell the world all about her. And this is what she says. She says, I need you to let people know that God is real and God is good. And everybody, meaning all religions, are actually quite right about God. I'm okay with all flavors, unless you're fully crazy train or use my name to hurt people. It's interesting. Now, certainly we would agree, we would be against using God's name to hurt people. And, and I like the idea that God can use anybody, even a simple guy like Clark, uh, as his messenger. But this idea that all religions are right really could only come from someone who's living in the secular postmodern West and who has never really studied the core tenets of religion. Because here's the thing, no one who actually embraces any of the major world religions would make that claim that all religions are right. Because do you know how hard it is to get the major religions of the world to agree on anything? It's really hard. And the ways that they disagree are in direct contradiction to one another. Just for instance, Christians believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was divine and sinless. Islam teaches, though, that, that Jesus was simply a prophet, not the Son of God, not divine, not part of a trinity. Now, they can't both be right. They could both be wrong, I guess, but they can't both be right about what they claim. And because of their view of Jesus, they also have contradictory views of salvation. Christians believe that you're saved through Jesus Christ, that you can't be saved by your own works. Islam and basically every other religion believes that salvation is not through Jesus and that you can be saved by your works. The hard truth is that we cannot all be right. And the message of the Bible is that God is exclusive and that he is saving a specific people to know him and to worship them. And those who reject him, as we've seen in the first two chapters, will be rejected themselves on the day of the Lord. Now, you may be wondering at this point, how is this evangelism? Because <laughs> isn't evangelism talking about Jesus? And where is Jesus in all this? You've talked about how God works to make people holy and worshipers. And you're right. Evangelism is ultimately about Jesus and the good news of what he came to do. And th while this passage does not say his name expressly, it does foreshadow his work. In fact, I would say that every passage in the Bible, both in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament, is ultimately about Jesus, whether it speaks of him directly, whether it prophesies his coming, or whether sometimes it just presents a situation where the only solution is 
God sending a Savior. You read a book like the book of Judges. You don't ever read about the name of Jesus, but the, the point of the book of Judges is that everyone did in those times what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And it's partly uh, an argument that the nation of Israel needed a good king like David, but it is ultimately an argument that we need a king like Jesus. And so here we see in verse 11 a logically impossible statement without the work of Christ. It says this, it says, On that day, again, the day of the Lord, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. On that day, God says that that his people will not be put to shame even though they've rebelled against him. Which doesn't make sense. Because sin brings shame, doesn't it? It's inevitable. We all wish that we were better people, but in our natural state, we are selfish, and we do, and we think all manner of evil, which leads to shame. There was a movie that came out years ago called The Fisher King, and in the movie, Jeff Bridges plays a guy named Jack, who is a radio host, and who's very brash, and uh, crude, and one night he's taking calls, and the caller calls in, and is really angry about something, and Jack makes a flippant comment, and the caller goes off, and he goes to a restaurant with a gun and opens fire, and then we flash forward years later, and we we see Jack is broken. He's uh, unemployed, he's suicidal, He's an alcoholic. But he gets a chance when he meets a a man named Perry. And he finds out that Perry was actually at that restaurant that night. And he has a chance, what he thinks, that a chance at redemption. If he can get past his shame. Let me ask you this question. What is it that makes you hate yourself? That is your shame. That's, that's your shame. The unique thing about Jesus was that he had no sin and therefore no reason to have shame. And yet, he chose to willingly bring on the greatest shame imaginable on the cross being crucified on a cross. Now, the cross itself was a shameful object. The Roman writer Cicero described crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He says, it's impossible to find a word for such an abomination. Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. See, crucifying someone essentially naked on a cross was so barbaric, so so shameful that polite Roman society, they didn't want to even think about it. But it wasn't just the method of torture that was shameful for Jesus. It was also the spiritual transaction that took place. Because on the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself. And in doing so, he took on our shame. And Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning or despising its shame. 
And in dying, Jesus took our shame away. And when shame is taken away, when the things that make you really hate yourself are dealt with, you can finally rest. Imagine if you really could experience those two things, freedom from shame and true rest. That is the salvation that God gives. Verse 11, on that day you shall not be put to shame. Verse 13, they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. All right. So, call this sermon God's evangelism plan. But how can we apply what we see here, what we've learned from these verses? How does this help us in doing gospel ministry? Well, let me suggest at least two ways. The first is this. Make sure that when we do evangelism, that it does not stop at initial belief. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says, he pictures a farmer going out to sow seed. And he, he sows it in four different kinds of soil. And ultimately, Jesus says that three-fourths, three out of those four soils uh, don't allow the seed to grow up, even though it looks like they are starting to. And he's saying that many times when the gospel goes out, even when it looks like it's taking root, often it does not for various reasons, cares of this world. It's a reminder that initial belief is not enough. And again, the key we get from Zephaniah 3 is what? To bring people into a worshiping gospel community. Our evangelism cannot stop at just getting a person to make an initial commitment to Christ. It needs to follow through to getting them involved in a church, getting rooted in a community where they can be surrounded and encouraged by fellow strugglers and be encouraged by the regular means of grace prayer, preaching, sacraments. This is, this is what Virginia's going to be doing in Ukraine. She's, she's going to be going out on college campuses and elsewhere during the week and making relationships and telling people about Jesus, but then ultimately to get them involved in a local church. This is the same thing that RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, does. It doesn't just go onto the campus and get students together and talk to them and and preach to them. Its end goal is to equip students to be involved in the local church. It is in, we talk about it as an arm, an extension of the church onto the college campus. And that's the philosophy of our missions organization, MTW. That everything that happens on the mission field at the end of the day is in support of what? Worship, church planting starting and continuing worshiping and building worshiping communities. So that's the first thing that we can apply. The second thing is, though, and this is a little hard, evangelism may need to happen even with people who claim to be Christians. Again, Jesus, in his parables, he tells us that sheep and goats go to church together. He says that wheat and weeds grow up right next to each other. It will not be separated until the end. What does that mean? It means that true believers who are trusting in Christ for salvation, 
we'll sit beside those who don't really believe and who are trying to save themselves every Sunday. Read verse 11, second half. He says, Then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. If you're trying to save yourself, you're the one that God calls proud, and he calls you to repentance, calls you to put your faith in Jesus before the day of the Lord. Friends, the way that we should measure our evangelism is not simply by the number of people we baptize or uh, the number of people who make a profession of faith, but it is by the number of disciples that we are making, the number of people who are calling on the name of the Lord, who are doing justice, speaking truth, and resting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that before the foundation of the world that you were making a plan, a plan of salvation for all ages. And that plan involves sending your son Jesus to the world to anoint him as king. After he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and where now every he is reigning as king and where every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And you will not rest until that happens, until you've made his enemies a footstool for him. And that is a challenge to the modern narrative of what it means to know God and what religion is all about, but it is also a comfort to those of us who are calling on the name of the Lord and trusting that you know what you're doing and you are working and you're working through us despite our weaknesses, despite our sinfulness to call to yourself a holy group, a holy people set apart to worship and know you and to be set free and to rest in you. In the name of Jesus we pray.